Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. By the President of the United States of America. A proclamation. Whereas great and weighty matters claiming the consideration of the Congress of the United States form an extraordinary occasion for convening them, I do by these presents appoint Monday, the fourth day of November next, for their meeting at the city of Washington, hereby requiring the respective senators and representatives then and there to assemble in Congress in order to receive such communications as may then be made to them and to consult and determine on such measures as in their wisdom may be deemed meet for the welfare of the United States. In testimony whereof I have caused the seal of the United States to be hereunto affixed, and signed the same with my hand. Done at the city of Washington, the 24th day of July, A.D., 1811, and of the independence of the United States, the 36th. James Madison. As we saw in our last episode, the first session of the 12th United States Congress convened at a time of upheaval, both on the political front as well as the physical landscape of the United States. As Henry Clay's ascendancy to the Speakership in the House of Representatives seemed to mark the inauguration of a new chapter in the political history of the United States, so too would the passage of the Great Comet over the skies and the earthquake striking New Madrid in the Louisiana Territory on the banks of the Mississippi River portend challenging times ahead for the young nation. Tecumseh was in the process of putting together a cross-regional confederation of Native peoples. Diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Great Britain were at their lowest point since the end of the Revolutionary War, and the new British diplomat posted to Washington was basically charged with just keeping the situation on simmer rather than actually working to resolve anything. Independence movements were popping up across Spanish America, and the fever dreams of leaders and citizens of the U.S. to exploit the situation to gain new territory abounded, threatening U.S.-Spanish relations. The French government had tricked the U.S. into taking action highly favorable to them at the expense of the British, with the U.S. gaining little to nothing in the deal. Slave owners in the Orleans Territory and beyond were still shaken up and seeing threats everywhere after an ultimately thwarted insurrection of enslaved individuals upriver from New Orleans. The coming of the presidential election year of 1812 did not seem to bode good tidings for President James Madison. But wait, dear listener. Before we close the book on 1811, we have a couple of other developments to discuss. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Thanks so much to Alan Ayers for reading the opening quote for this episode. Alan is the host of the Political History of the United States, a podcast devoted to exploring the origins and evolution of the American political system. From the beginnings at Jamestown on up to the present day, 
Alan guides his audience through the various factors that contributed to the crafting of what we now know of as American politics. As we've already seen in this podcast, there are many nuances to how the circumstances of the modern day came to be. So if you'd like to learn more about U.S. political history, be sure to check out the Political History of the United States anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Or you can go to uspoliticalpodcast.com to learn more. I'll also be sharing information about the political history of the United States on my social media around the release of this episode. With that said, let's get back to our narrative. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's start out in Richmond, Virginia, on the evening of December 26, 1811. That night, as noted by historian Alan Taylor, quote, an audience of 600, including dozens of fashionable men and women, gathered to see a new play, Father, or Family Feuds, at the Richmond Theater. In the audience that night was George William Smith, the man who had taken over as governor of Virginia after James Monroe resigned to become Secretary of State, as discussed in episode 4.15. Unfortunately for the performers and the audience, a candle was placed dangerously close to the stage set and set it ablaze. The fire quickly engulfed the theater, and in an age without emergency exits and evacuation procedures, you can imagine the bedlam that ensued. As described by Taylor, quote, The flames spread so rapidly through the packed theater that people struggled to escape, trampling and suffocating the slow. Others died or suffered crippling injury by jumping from the windows on the upper floor. Two of the 72 people who died in the blaze were Governor Smith and former U.S. Senator Abraham Venable. In addition to the disruption in the political and social composition of the state, the fire also fueled the fears of slave owners that it was, quote, the signal for insurrection and that those who escaped the fury of the flames might have to encounter an enemy more destructive than fire itself. While negligence was ultimately proven to be the cause of the disaster, the knee-jerk reaction speaks to the growing paranoia of enslavers at the time. Only 11 years had passed since Gabriel's Rebellion, which we discussed way back in episode 2.21. So between that local history and recent events further south, the connected thoughts make sense. But the white fears of those they enslaved violently revolting would lead the nation down an increasingly dark path, as we'll see as we go along. For now, though, let's go further south and get caught up on developments on the border with East Florida. After receiving their commissions from the Madison administration in January 1811, George Matthews and Colonel John McKee had traveled south to the border with East Florida. They arrived at St. Mary's, Georgia on February 25th, where Matthews intended to set up their base of operations, quote, to devise and organize a rebellion that would bring the southern tip of the Atlantic seaboard into the Confederation of American States. First, though, they had to travel to West Florida to speak to the governor of that portion of the province still under Spanish control, Vicente Fulch. Again, as discussed in episode 4.16, 
Given the desperate situation that Foch was in after most of the province had broken away and been taken over by the U.S., and with no support coming from Spanish authorities, he had been inching towards the point of opening negotiations with the Americans to hand over the remaining portions of West Florida. Before Matthews could get to Foch, the Captain General of Cuba, the Marquez de Samareros, had sent supplies and new orders, quote, to resist the growing American military presence around West Florida. After 10 weeks of meeting with Foch, Matthews and McKee were unable to convince him to come to an agreement to hand over his province. So Matthews returned to St. Mary's, arriving back there on June 9th. By that point, the new Secretary of State, James Monroe, had sent instructions for him and McKee to focus in on efforts in East Florida and leave any negotiations with Foch to Orleans Territorial Governor William Claiborne. At around this time, East Florida was undergoing a change of leadership as the previous governor had passed away and his successor, Juan José de Estrada, was taking up his post. Matthews was originally hopeful that Estrada may be more amenable to surrender, but he soon learned from friends in St. Mary's that Estrada was extremely loyal to Spain and would never concede without a fight. Thus, Matthews returned to his plotting to find a way to incite a rebellion and settled on as a leader of this effort, John Houston McIntosh, a Georgian by heritage who had become a Spanish citizen and resided in East Florida with estates there, quote, worth more than $28,000, in addition to still owning lands in Georgia. Unfortunately for Matthews, he didn't let McIntosh know about the plan soon enough and wasn't discreet enough to keep tons of other people from finding out about the scheme. It wasn't that McIntosh was completely taken off guard by the fact that Matthews wanted to acquire East Florida for the U.S. They had, in fact, discussed the possibility back in 1810. But McIntosh expressed his doubts about the viability of the scheme, even with the support of the U.S. government. By the time Matthews returned to St. Mary's to begin to seriously flush out a scheme to take East Florida, McIntosh was in the process of moving his family to St. Mary's so that his children could attend a school in the U.S. He learned from everyone he talked to in town that Matthews, quote, in the capacity of a commissioner of the United States government, is ordered to treat with the constituted powers of East Florida for the possession of the province. As McIntosh, quote, conceived it a duty I owe the Spanish government to give all the information I get to them, he reported all that he knew about Matthews's plans in late July 1811, both to a friend to share with Spanish authorities, as well as in a letter to Governor Estrada himself. Thus, before long, the Captain General in Cuba, Somoreros, as well as the Spanish government's representative in Philadelphia, Don Luis de Onís, were receiving reports from Estrada about the plans to attempt to take East Florida from Spain. By early September 1811, both Spanish and British diplomatic officials were lodging official protests to Secretary of State Monroe about the government's actions along the East Florida border. Meanwhile, though he had been one of the first to throw up the warning flags, McIntosh was finally contacted by Matthews, who let him in on the plans and his intended role for McIntosh. Before long, McIntosh's reports back to St. Augustine stopped, and by the end of 1811, McIntosh and Matthews were coordinating to plan how the forces they were gathering, which they called the Patriots, could remove the Spanish authorities in East Florida. The core leadership of the Patriots was described by historian James G. Cusick as, quote, a tight-knit group of men. 
The year's end saw Governor Estrada on the other side of the border growing increasingly concerned. Not only was he continuing to get reports of American plots, but he was getting little to nothing in the way of supplies in order to combat the threat. Even nature seemed to be conspiring against him as a hurricane hit in mid-October and Estrada had to organize relief for those impacted. On December 30th, he learned that American Commodore Hugh Campbell had come aboard a brigantine to St. Mary's, quote, that offloaded 18 18-pound cannons, 500 cartouches of gunpowder, and ball for muskets. After this news, though, there was a lull in activity. And by March 16, 1812, Governor Estrada reported back to Spanish authorities, quote, that everything appeared tranquil. Before we go any further in East Florida, however, let's shift our attention back to Washington, D.C., to get caught up with some important developments there. James Monroe had been brought in as Secretary of State in order to usher in a refresh of the Madison administration's foreign policy, which, to that point, had only resulted in the U.S. playing into French hands and gaining little, while simultaneously worsening relations with Great Britain, a situation that didn't need any more fuel on the already blazing fire. The timing of Monroe's coming into the cabinet could not have been better, because it also coincided with shifts in the two key U.S. diplomatic posts abroad, those in London and Paris. As noted in episode 4.14, John Armstrong Jr. had left as U.S. Minister to France in late 1810, while, as noted in episode 4.16, William Pinckney had hung on a bit longer until finally, in the spring of 1811, he announced his departure as U.S. Minister to Britain in protest to the Percival Ministry's continued obstinance in refusing to enter into forthright discussion on the strain in Anglo-American relations. For the former post in Paris, Madison had already decided on a candidate prior to Monroe being brought in. While he hasn't found his way into the narrative until now, Joel Barlow has been in the background and, at times, in governmental positions since the Washington Presidency Series. A native of Connecticut, Barlow had achieved renown as a poet, a champion of education, and a diplomat. He had witnessed both the American Revolution and the French Revolution, traveled in Europe, and served as U.S. Consul in Algiers in the latter days of the Washington presidency. After years abroad, Joel and his wife Ruth returned to the U.S. during Jefferson's second term and moved into a mansion called Calorama that Barlow had constructed in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., While it's beyond our scope to go into much more detail about Barlow's life and career, for our purposes, it's important to know that he was an ardent and well-known Democratic-Republican. As described by Barlow's biographer Peter P. Hill, quote, to his contemporaries, Joel Barlow was a powerful presence, a man who spoke out passionately on issues he believed stood to exalt the new nation's place in a rapidly changing world. Whether as prophet or publicist for America's singular destiny, he not only envisioned a transformative role for his country, he also meant to have a hand in shaping it. It's not surprising that President Madison would want such an ardent champion of the nation representing it abroad, particularly in the French capital, where, to date, one diplomat after another had struggled to make any headway in advancing the American agenda with the government of French Emperor Napoleon. As noted by Barlow's other biographer, Richard Buell Jr., quote, Madison quickly realized that advantage might be gained by appointing Barlow minister to France. 
No one in America was better qualified than Barlow to communicate with and maneuver within the labyrinths of the French government. As expected, Barlow quickly agreed to the post, and on February 26, 1811, Madison submitted Barlow's nomination to the Senate for confirmation. As this was around the time of the debate over the recharter of the Bank of the United States, as discussed in episode 4.15, it should come as little surprise that Senator Samuel Smith, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, was in opposition to Barlow's nomination, dismissing him as, quote, a man of small talents and, quote, a commercial man. He was attacked by other opponents, quote, as an impractical poet and visionary, quote, an unscrupulous entrepreneur, and, quote, an atheist. Despite this litany of attacks, Joel Barlow was ultimately confirmed by the Senate as U.S. Minister to France by a vote of 21 to 9. The attacks against Barlow would not end with his confirmation, however. The Federalist press continued to castigate him, while even Barlow's predecessor as U.S. Minister to France came into the fray against him, accusing him of, quote, prostituting the American flag for personal gain at public expense in his speculation in disputed prizes while he had been in Europe. As noted by Buell, however, quote, what really worried Armstrong was that Barlow might improve relations between the two countries, i.e. the United States and France, which had soured during Armstrong's ambassadorship. Madison did not intend for Barlow to proceed with haste to the new posting, however. The new French minister to the U.S., Louis-Babet Charles Serrier, had quickly sought out an acquaintance with Barlow due to his, quote, fluent French and his friendship with many figures at the highest levels within the American government. So the president hoped to use Barlow to get a better sense from Serrier just what the French policy was towards the U.S. Though a strategically sound move that would help prepare the new U.S. minister for what he would face in Paris, it also meant that Barlow and his wife were present for all the attacks against him in print. Barlow at one point did reconsider whether he should take the post, and with his wife Ruth's illness and growing opposition to the diplomatic mission, he was quite motivated to say, thanks, but no thanks. Meanwhile, at least one of President Madison's prominent opponents may have wished that Barlow would have left the nation sooner rather than later. After being shunted out of the cabinet, as described in episode 4.15, former Secretary of State Robert Smith had committed himself to launching a public attack against the Madison administration. And in late June 1811, this revenge work, entitled Robert Smith's Address to the People of the United States, was launched to press and would be reprinted in numerous papers across the nation. In addition to defending his conduct while in office, Smith also sought to paint Madison as dangerously pro-French in failing to push for proper measures to defend American interests and revealing the extent of Napoleon's refusal to make recompense for his government's recent seizure of American ships and cargoes. Such a brazen attack could not go unchallenged. But at a time where it was considered untoward for a president to engage directly in political debates, Madison had to consider who would stand as his champion in the press, much as he had for his predecessor, Jefferson. Luckily, there was a noted writer, not afraid to speak his mind in defense of the administration, still at a nearby mansion in Washington. In consultation with William Lee, before long, the first of four articles written by Barlow appeared titled, A Review of Robert Smith's Address 
to the people of the United States. Barlow began the essay with the following sentence, quote, An opinion had long prevailed with many persons, both in and out of Congress, that Mr. Secretary Smith, from want of capacity and want of integrity, was quite unfit for his place. While Robert Smith would respond in print and dismiss this ridiculous charge, which didn't paint the president in a good light either, as it meant that Madison, who he had worked with for eight years prior in Jefferson's cabinet, had knowingly appointed someone, quote-unquote, quite unfit for his place as Secretary of State, Barlow's account would ultimately become the accepted popular historical view of Smith, and Robert Smith would vanish from the national stage after this ill-advised political salvo against the Madison administration. Barlow, on the other hand, proved himself to be a man on the rise politically with the review, as, beyond just countering Smith's arguments, he also, quote, showed a grasp of foreign policy issues that doubtless commended him for the mission he would soon undertake. In the meantime, Secretary of State James Monroe set a new plan into place with the newly arrived ministers from Britain and France, respectively. Starting in late June, Monroe began to press French minister to the U.S. Sillier to provide an explanation as to why U.S. trade with France, quote, was still subject to restriction in spite of the revocation of the decrees. As we've discussed in previous episodes, it appeared that the French had not fully opened up their ports to American shipping and had sold off American ships and cargoes that it had seized previously, two of the conditions insisted upon by the administration and that they had initially thought were met by the Cador letter, but later learned otherwise. Though still new to his post, Sorier had met with Smith fired his dismissal from the cabinet, and he felt that there was a sharp contrast between the former secretary and the new one. He wrote back to his government that, quote, Mr. Monroe's countenance was absolutely distorted. I could not conceive how an object, apparently so unimportant, could affect him so keenly. Sorier had nothing to report officially, but decided on his own accord to send a veiled threat to the new Secretary of State. Through the grapevine, he spread word that if the administration didn't send Barlow on his intended mission to France— the French imperial government would view such action as a sign, quote, that the United States was reneging on the agreement authorized by Macon's Law No. 2. Before Monroe could address this, the other player in this drama arrived in Washington, D.C. In their initial meeting on July 3, 1811, British minister to the U.S. Augustus Foster freely admitted to Monroe that his government had given him no room with which to negotiate on the matters that were at the top of their list of concerns. Namely, that the odious orders in council, which impacted neutral trade with France, would remain in place until France restored rights to both British and neutral trading with their ports. Beyond just having nothing to offer, Foster furthermore issued a formal request that the prohibition of trade with Britain under Macon's Bill No. 2 be suspended. Though, as we noted, it didn't appear that the French had lived up to the implied promise in the Cador letter In order to save face, the administration was acting in the public sphere as if the French had met American demands. As explained by historian William H. Masterson, the administration framed their position as such, quote, In the international area, the French decrees were officially repealed, and that hence any French seizures were made by municipal regulations with which Britain had no concern. That said officially, 
Monroe started to see a potential opening. And thus, the Secretary of State, the day after his meeting with Foster, turned his attention back to the French minister. Monroe informed Sautier on July 4th that Barlow would proceed on his mission to Paris as planned. However, as the arrival of Foster coincided with the arrival of reports from the highest-ranking American official in Paris at present, U.S. Chargé d'Affaires Jonathan Russell, as the mail had come in on the same ship as Foster, Monroe asked for another meeting a few days later after he had had an opportunity to read Russell's reports. On July 9th, Monroe again asked Sautier to explain his government's position and, when he admitted having no further guidance from Paris, Monroe delivered, quote, another tirade about the difficulties France was causing the administration. With eight months having passed since Madison's proclamation, why was the French government still not sharing its intent when the American government had publicly done so and stuck by its word? Further, quote, as long as the question remains unresolved, Monroe told Sautier Barlow's departure would be postponed. If the French government would not prove an honest partner with which to deal, there was no reason in sending a minister across the Atlantic. As Monroe said at the end of their meeting, quote, Believe me, the American government will not be inconsequent, but its patience is exhausted, and it is determined to make itself respected. People in Europe suppose us to be merchants, occupied exclusively with pepper and ginger. They are much deceived, and I hope we shall prove it. Sorier, after this interview, reported back to his government his fears that the Madison administration was about to reverse itself and shut down trade with France once more if the French didn't reciprocate and open its ports freely to American shipping. With this report sent off, Monroe was able to deliver the coup de grace. The secretary had, quote, received unofficial reports that ships sequestered in France since November 1st, 1810, the date of Madison's proclamation, had been released, although those seized before that date were still impounded. On July 17th, Sautier was summoned back to Monroe's office and, presented with news of these unofficial reports, the secretary asserted that Barlow's mission to Paris could proceed if the French minister was willing, quote, to write a letter that interpreted this unofficial information as confirmation of the French government's intentions. While this wouldn't be enough to counter Foster's arguments, it would be enough to justify Barlow's mission to France to the American public, and, with luck, either he would be able to negotiate a more palpable agreement with Napoleon's government, or the British government would be threatened enough by the prospect of the U.S. and France reaching an agreement that they would budge in their intransigence. Much in the same spirit as Macon's Bill No. 2 was initially passed, Monroe intended to use the dispute between Britain and France to the advantage of the U.S. Though he was acting against official orders, Sautier was concerned enough about a potential break in relations between the U.S. and France that he agreed to write the letter per Monroe's request. On July 20th, Monroe confirmed that Barlow was preparing to travel to France and that his instructions were being drafted. On August 1st, Joel and Ruth Barlow departed from Annapolis, Maryland, aboard the USS Constitution, bound for Europe. This, of course, did not mean that Sautier was off the hook, and both President Madison and Secretary Monroe continued to press him about the issues at hand. Meanwhile, as the last session of the 11th Congress had already ended by the time of his arrival, 
Monroe informed Foster that no new minister from the U.S. would be named to the post in London until Congress reconvened. However, in a sign that the administration was amenable to the possibility of changing course if negotiations with the French did not prove fruitful, Foster was informed that President Madison was calling Congress back in session a month early, in November 1811. With this done, Madison was able to depart from Montpelier while Monroe headed for his estate in the Charlottesville area, Highlands, in order to attend to private business as well as reflect on the administration's next steps. Despite Monroe suffering from injuries sustained from being, quote, knocked from his horse by a tree limb shortly after arriving home in August, which kept him from going too far for nearly a month, it seems like the two men were able to coordinate their efforts during this time and, as asserted by Monroe's biographer Harry Ammon, quote, it seems likely that Monroe and Madison at this time reached an agreement to move toward war if Britain did not respond to American demands by the end of the year. Both arrived back in Washington, D.C. in October and met with the cabinet to discuss Madison's annual message to Congress. The president's original draft was forceful in asserting that he would, quote-unquote, authorize reprisals against Britain if it continued its, quote, direct and undisguised hostility. Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, no fan of war in general, and realizing just how difficult of a prospect it would be logistically to obtain funding for it in the wake of the Bank of the United States not being rechartered, urged Madison to consider, quote, the uncertainty in every respect of the effect of a war, and advised that Madison defer more to the judgment of Congress. This new Congress was known to be full of incoming congressmen who were more amenable to a stronger stance against British insults, and Sorier reported Madison's annual message as being, quote, an equivalent to a declaration of war on Great Britain, despite being toned down from the original draft. In his message, the president, quote, recommended enlarging the army, preparing the militia, finishing the military academy at West Point, stockpiling munitions, expanding the navy, and increasing the tariff to encourage trade and manufacturers vital to the national interest. For the first time since the short-lived grace period following the Erskine Agreement, Madison's annual message of 1811 seems to have generated some goodwill across the ideological board. Though there were still, of course, detractors, even as tough of a critic as former President Adams asserted that this message, quote, did its author great honor. This did not mean, however, that the French were in the clear. Madison sent a message to Paris for Barlow warning that, though it appeared that war with Britain was more likely, the persistence of the French government in its, quote, crafty contrivance and insatiate cupidity had aroused as much irritation and disgust as possible in the United States. Unless word of, quote, a radical change of the French policy toward this country arrived before long, quote, hostile collision will as readily take place with one nation as the other. The carrot was peace with one nation and a potential alliance are, at the very least, denying supplies and support toward the other. The stick was war against one or the other. The line was drawn, and it'd be up to the leaders in the foreign capitals to determine the next step. Meanwhile, the administration continued to build its case against both, though it seemed that more evidence was coming in at a steady pace against the British. 
As news of the Battle of Tippecanoe, which we discussed back in episode 4.16, came to Washington, and, in particular, Harrison's report that British rifles and gunpowder had been found at Prophetstown, American politicians were increasingly talking of war in the new session of Congress. The House Foreign Affairs Committee in November began considering what measures should be put forward to the full House for military preparations. A proposal was made that American commerce should be protected by initiating convoys with U.S. merchant ships protected by naval vessels, but this was a step too far for most of the committee members as it was certain to lead to a conflict with the British Royal Navy. The committee discussion went back and forth, and they consulted with the administration. Once they got reassurances from Secretary of State Monroe that the administration was willing to put forward a request for a declaration of war in the spring, the committee agreed to send forward in their report of November 29th proposals for, quote, legislation to bring the regular army up to statutory strength, the enlistment of three-year men and other volunteers, the approval of drafts of state militia, outfitting of the Navy, and authorization for merchant ships to arm. Once the debate in the House started a week later, the Warhawks started delivering one speech after another. While, of course, the primary reasons for going to war with Britain were the orders in council hindering neutral American trading, which the British government had to date refused to repeal, and the impressment issue, which the Percival Ministry and its representatives also refused to address. In these speeches, we get a couple of other reasonings for war that were part of the consideration. There were appeals to national honor as the British had proven their lack of respect for the U.S., but there was also the matter of Canada. Even looking at a map in the modern day, 2023 as of this recording, we see Canada stretching out just north of the modern day U.S. As of the end of 1811, while Canada still lay to the north, there was much less of it in terms of British settlements. At this point, there were only 500,000 British inhabitants in Canada versus 7.7 million Americans, and most of those were in settlements quite close to the American border in what is now southern Ontario, southern Quebec, Labrador, and the Maritime provinces. Further, there were minimal British military forces at present in Canada. As of 1812, historian Stephen Rausch notes that, quote, there were about 5,500 British regulars in Canada, with about 1,200 of those in Upper Canada, present-day Ontario. Backing them were contingents of Canadian militia who, much as their American counterparts, were of questionable effectiveness. Further, with the war against Napoleon's French Empire still raging, the British could not afford to divert too many additional forces to Canada, and providing adequate supplies from across the Atlantic would prove to be a logistical concern. With all that in mind, it is easy to understand why some U.S. representatives felt that Canada would easily fall before U.S. forces. As the Warhawks pushed through the first resolution authorizing the filling of already authorized positions in the military ranks by a vote of 117 to 11, they would find a staunch war opponent taking the floor in the debate over the second resolution, which would authorize raising an additional 10,000 in troops. Though writing around that time that he was, quote, unconnected, unconsulted, and betrayed, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, asserted that, quote, I still wage a feeble war against that horde of upstart patriots who are ruining our common country. Thus, on December 10, 1811, 
he delivered remarks attacking the rush to war with Britain as it would be, quote, a war not of defense, but of conquest, of aggrandizement, of ambition, a war foreign to the interest of this country, to the interest of humanity itself. Randolph asserted that the federal government, quote, was not calculated to wage offensive foreign war. It was instituted for the common defense and the general welfare. He attacked those who called themselves Democratic Republicans, yet pushed for war, mocking them as, quote, gallant crusaders in the holy cause of republicanism. Such republicanism does indeed mean anything or nothing. Two days after Randolph's speech, one of the new congressmen, who was quickly making a name for himself, rose to deliver a reply in one of his first speeches in the House. Just as the new Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, is someone who we'll be talking about for quite a while, so too is the representative from South Carolina named John C. Calhoun. Randolph biographer David Johnson described him as follows, quote, Calhoun was not yet the cast iron man captured in Brady's daguerreotypes. He was a 30-year-old ardent nationalist, lean and tall, with piercing dark eyes. He was restrained, logical, thorough, and cold. Seemingly, the perfect contrast to Randolph. Randolph had been one of the older Democratic Republicans that Clay and the Warhawks had known would be their chief opposition to taking a tougher line with Britain. And once he was established as the leader of the House, Clay knew that he would need to draw on other emerging leaders to make things happen, and Calhoun was one of the folks that he had picked as a valuable ally. Calhoun had been part of the House Foreign Affairs Committee that had worked on the report of November 29th, and Calhoun biographer Robert Elder asserts that this report was likely the product of Calhoun's pen. Thus, he had a vested interest in seeing the recommendations that had been put forward in it through the legislative process. Elder sets the stage for Calhoun's response as follows, quote, In contrast to Randolph's extravagant display of sarcasm, wit, and oratory, Calhoun's speech was a carefully crafted barrage of logic that demolished each of Randolph's points with surgical precision, the effect of the whole growing with each successive point, which came on relentlessly, one after another. Naturally, Randolph met Calhoun's attack, quote, with sarcasm and bile, but it was clear who had the upper hand. Further, Randolph had already taken measure of the ambition of both Calhoun and Clay and wrote around the start of the session that, quote, they have entered this house with their eye on the presidency. That's for the future. But for now, once the debate wrapped up, the House passed the bill to enlist an additional 10,000 troops by a vote of 110 to 22. Four other bills which stem from the House Foreign Affairs Committee's report likewise passed with similar results. The Warhawks' plans were underway, and even John Randolph of Roanoke could not stop them. Meanwhile, as you can imagine, with so much activity happening in the halls of power as well as in various points across the nation and beyond, the president was feeling the pressure. As described by his biographer, Ralph Ketchum, quote, Madison, his countenance pallid and hard, labored incessantly, sleeping very little, going to bed late, and getting up frequently during the night to write or read, for which purpose a candle 
was always burning in the chamber. The social scene that was guided by his wife, Dolly, provided some comfort. In particular, quote, after dinner, at which he usually took a liberal portion of wine. At this time, Madison, quote, became free and even facetious, telling with great archness many anecdotes that displayed the habitual smut common to men of Madison's generation in Virginia. Besides the comfort of his wife and male colleagues, the president's house at this point was full of young relatives, as James's private secretary, Edward Coles, Dolly's brother, John C. Payne, and Dolly's son, Payne Todd, were permanent residents. James's nephews, Alfred and Robert, were frequent long-term guests, as was Dolly's sister, the widowed Lucy Payne Washington. And Dolly had invited the 20-year-old Phoebe Morris to stay with them for the season. Again from Ketchum, quote, Amid such company, the president did not lack for youthful diversion or pleasing respite for eyes tired by the piles of paper always on his desk. Madison's concern at this time, however, was not just with the potential for war with Britain or diplomatic strain with increased French attacks on American vessels or the threat of Tecumseh's Confederacy or the intrigue with the Floridas. Going into 1812, there was an election coming up. Madison had been visited by two gentlemen from New York around the holidays, ostensibly to pitch an idea about federal support for, quote, a canal from the Hudson River to Lake Erie. One of these men was someone who we haven't talked about in the narrative series in quite a while, the former U.S. Minister to France and former U.S. Senator Gouverneur Morris. The other, however, was a potential problem. Morris's colleague in this lobbying effort was the 42-year-old Lieutenant Governor of New York and Mayor of New York City, DeWitt Clinton. Dolly Madison wrote around the time of DeWitt Clinton's visit that, quote, the intrigues for president and vice president go on with the Clintons, Smiths, Armstrongs, etc., all in the field. As we've already seen thus far in this series, there was certainly a strong opposition to Madison. But at this point, it seems like there just wasn't the right candidate to consolidate the opposition faction to launch a viable candidacy as an alternative to Madison. John Armstrong Jr., the former U.S. Minister to France who had returned to the U.S. in December 1810, admittedly had good political connections in New York State. Though he may have had larger ambitions, he wasn't all that well-known nationally, and indeed, at this point, was out of office and tending to his farm on the Hudson River. A better candidate might have been Vice President George Clinton, who had, as discussed in episode 4.15, made a very public show of opposition to administration policy with his vote against renewing the charter of the Bank of the United States. However, Clinton at this point was ill and growing increasingly worse. It was clear to most anyone that the VP would not be able to run. DeWitt Clinton, on the other hand, as a younger member of the prominent Clinton faction, there was a possibility. In the next episode, we are going to explore the very busy few months in 1812 that led to what we all know is coming. In the midst of that rush to June 1812, however, there will be a few surprises around the corner. I'll be honest, as I've been with the majority of this series, I am a bit nervous about how I'm going to put all these disparate threads together in a way that makes sense. You'll have to tune in next time to find out if I succeed in that with the episode that I like to call Let's Slip. 
As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to again thank Alan of the Political History of the United States podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Be sure to check out his podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. I'd also like to thank Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. Editing can sometimes be one of the most time-consuming parts of podcasting, and it has been such a help to enlist Christian services to ensure that I'm able to retain a high-quality sound to the podcast while at the same time freeing up my time to focus in on research, scripting, recording, and the other tasks that are part of the process. If you'd like to get Christian's assistance with your podcast or next audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. Not only does it help to set the mood for these episodes, but I also often listen to songs by the Itinerant Band while working on scripts, as it invokes for me the mood of the Jeffersonian era of American history. Be sure to check out their music anywhere fine music can be found, or you can find more information about them on my website, which is Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. There, you can also see the sources used for this episode, listen to any episodes that you may have missed, explore resources available on each of the American presidents, and learn how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support presidencies. The quickest and easiest way, of course, is to share information about the podcast with others, be it offline or on social media. You can also leave the podcast a rating and review, either through my website, presidenciespodcast.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or any other podcasting platform with that capability. It only takes a minute and helps to get the word out there about why other folks should check out the Presidency's podcast. If you're so inclined, you can also join the growing ranks of patrons of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash presidencies and signing up. Naturally, I provide tokens of my appreciation to patrons no matter what tier they sign up on, and I cannot thank them enough for helping me to offset the cost of podcasting, be that in terms of purchasing research materials or equipment, or any recurring fees to host and promote the podcast. No matter how you support the podcast, I greatly appreciate all of you who have helped me to keep this labor of love going. If you don't already, I hope you'll follow me on social media. I'm available on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post as Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. You can also send any questions or comments you may have to me via email at Presidencies Podcast, that's right, all one word, at gmail.com. One more item to mention before I go. A longtime listener of the podcast and a great supporter and friend of so many in the history podcasting community, Andrew Schneider, has a work of his own coming up that I wanted to mention. A composer and musician, Andrew's work will be featured on an upcoming album titled Pinnacle Volume 3, Contemporary Chamber Works. The release date is March 10th, 2023, and I'll be sharing information on my social media around the release. For more information about Andrew's work, check out Andrew Schneider Music, that's all one word, dot com. Thanks so much to all of you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.